0: The following is a production of The People of Mars Hill. For more information, visit pomh.org. It's just a paragraph I'm gonna read to you. The seashore is a better place than the street because you need lots of open room. At first, it's better to run than to walk. You may have to try several times before it works. It takes some skill, but it's easy to learn. Even young children can enjoy it. Birds seldom get too close. If there are no problems, it can be very peaceful. But if it breaks loose, you probably will not get another chance. Now, what is it talking about? Really have no idea, right? I mean, it's like, it's a lot of words, but your mind can go a whole bunch of different places. Now I add one word to it to give you some context. And the word is kite. Now listen to it. The seashore is a better place than the street because you need lots of open room. At first, it's better to run than to walk. You may have to try several times before it works. It takes some skill, but it's easy to learn. Even young children can enjoy it. Birds seldom get too close. If there are no problems, it can be very peaceful, but if it breaks loose, you probably will not get another chance. How how many of you did it make way more sense By me just telling you one word and all of a sudden you know exactly what it's talking about. So that's what we are talking about when we talk about context and how context helps us to better understand things that we read and things that we talk about and things that we study. And so just like one word makes sense of what we read there, when we understand the context of the gospel, when we understand the context of the birth story of Christ, it also makes more sense of it. And so that's what we want to do for the next three weeks. Because when we read the birth narrative and ultimately the whole gospel story, it's about two kingdoms colliding together. And it is the kingdom of the Roman empire, which Jesus was born under, and it was also the kingdom that was coming forth that was being proclaimed, and that was the kingdom of God. And because of that, many of the gospel writers were using very specific language and very specific words to point that out, to contrast the two different kingdoms, okay? And so that's what we want to pay attention to. We've all heard the story over and over again about Jesus' birth, or at least most of us probably have. And so what we want to do for the next three days is tell that same story, but to tell it from a different angle, so that maybe we see it Differently for the first time. So, when we talk about context, when we talk about the Christmas story, we are looking at specifically Luke, but also Matthew and some of the other Gospels, but Luke gives us more information about the birth of Jesus than any other gospel. And there is language that's being used in all of these gospel stories. And even that Paul picks up later when we talk about Jesus as Lord and we talk about Jesus as savior, we tend to think of those words as being words that are Christian, words that are biblical. But in fact, these were words that preceded the writing of those books. These were words that were common in the Roman empire. These were words that were attributed to Caesar before they were actually attributed to Christ. And so when these writers are writing, they are intentionally comparing the two different kingdoms, the two different kinds of kings, the two different kinds of rulers, and they want us to see the difference of what Jesus is bringing into this picture. And so when we look at that story and when we hear it again as we study through it, what we have to understand is our context can also lead us to misunderstandings about The gospel story of Christ's birth, right? Uh, Because for the you know past 30 days, all we've heard is. uh, Christmas music over and over again everywhere that we go um, to the point that it becomes nauseating. Really, it's been from the point of like October 31st or right around like Halloween is when you start hearing it. And then all of a sudden, Home Depot puts up those big blow ups. I mean, right after they take the big witch down, then goes up the trees and all that other stuff, you know. And so immediately we are just inundated with all this idea of what the holiday is about. Rarely does any of that actually relate to the story. So a lot of times the context, our context detracts from the story instead of enhances or brings our focus to it. And so this Christmas season especially will bring out either negativity, it'll bring out some struggles, or it'll bring out a focus that Is truly about the peace that Christ intended to bring, that God was bringing to us through the birth of his son. And so, as we go to all of our different parties, as we see all of the ads for Christmas stuff, and you got to buy this, and your kids have to have that, and you deserve this, then what happens is we're going to get carried away. We get carried away sometimes with the decorations, don't we? Don't we? I've seen some of your houses. You got carried away with decorations. Sometimes we get carried away with the presents. Uh, More than likely, a lot of people will um, be in debt when it comes around to January because they spent way more money than they should have to buy gifts for people that they don't even like. Okay, And so that's what happens during this season, and that can be a frustrating thing as well. How many of you spent so much time preparing your family Christmas card. It had to have the perfect picture with the perfect background. And you had to have the perfect words that looked Christmassy. It couldn't look too Roman and it couldn't look, you know, too comic sans. It had to look like decent, right? And so you poured a lot of time into that. So we look at all of these things, spend time on this. And if you're not careful, what happens is we can very quickly turn those traditions into idols, They can become these small idols in our life. And what happens is we end up making good things into God things. And we fail to recognize what the heart of this season is really all about, what the heart of the gospel is about. So Christmas has become this cultural phenomenon. Matter of fact, one study says this, that Americans will spend upwards of $682 billion this year on gifts and decorations alone. So I find it amazing So many people are going to participate in all these different Christian trappings of Christmas, and yet they will completely miss Christmas this year. At worst, Christmas brings out idolatry in us. And maybe at its best, it brings out this mindfulness and appreciation of family or blessings or health. But even those things can be idolatrous if they are absent from the gospel. You know, family not redeemed by Christ is is not something that we can highlight and say is the best that it can be because it hasn't seen its best days. It hasn't seen its fulfillment unless we experience that redemption of Christ. And so the gospel, particularly this narrative of Jesus' birth, makes so much sense when we understand it in its original context. So it's important to understand that the gospels begin with God sending a son during the time which everyone was looking to Caesar. Caesar was the big power of that day. He was the one who had conquered all the lands around him. He was the one that was reigning supreme. Everybody was looking for salvation and peace. And God delivered it in such an unexpected way that most people missed it that first season. So... In 753 BC, we know that Rome was founded. What we don't really know is how Rome was founded. There are actually two different stories that come from that. One of them believed that Rome was founded when, when uh, Romulus killed his twin brother Remus, and that was the beginning of Rome. Other people point to Troy, and after Troy was sacked by the Greeks, that one of the the prince of Troy founded Rome, and that was the beginning of the Roman Empire. How exactly it was founded is really irrelevant to the story, but what we do know about the history of Rome is that monarchs ruled Rome for the first few hundred years of their founding. Before it became a republic and it was established as a republic in 509 BC. Take notes. There's going to be a quiz at the end now that we have these apps and stuff. So I'm just kidding. There's not going to be one. All right. But this, this Republic of Rome was comprised of, of elected magistrates and it lasted all the way till 27 BC. Now from 509 to 264 BC. Okay. Get that in your head. How far that is. Remember BC is right here and AD is right here. And so AD starts counting up, but BC counts backwards. So, you know, the the smaller you get in BC, the closer you're getting to the time of Christ. Okay, so when, from 509 to 246, this is the, during the Roman expansion, and they really began to expand and take over territories that we now know as Italy, and eventually they took over the entire Italian peninsula. In 264 BC, a little bit closer, they began this series of wars with Carthage. How many of y'all remember Hannibal? not from the A-team, but Hannibal that was actually a general. Well, he was a general of Carthage. And remember, he was a nemesis of the Romans for so long. He was the one who led Carthage. And that was the, Rome's primary economic and political rival in that Mediterranean region. Now, during the same time that these wars were raging on, there was also a series of power struggles that began between the successors of Alexander the Great. And eventually, because of that, it fractured and most of Greece turned into Rome and, the, and Rome incorporated them in. By 129 BC, getting a little bit closer, Rome dominated the Mediterranean. They dominated Spain, Carthage, Greece, and Asia Minor. And now at 69 BC, Rome conquered Judea or the area that Jesus is going to be born in. And it it pretty much conquered the whole surrounding region of Judea as well. And that was broken apart and given to different people to rule over. The people of Judea were required to economically, politically, and militarily be subordinate to Rome. Now, the guy who was leading during this time, his name was Julius Caesar. He was a Roman politician and a very successful military journal. Many of you have probably heard of Julius Caesar, very different than Orange Julius. That's a whole different thing. That's where you go to the mall and you can get your favorite little smoothie. And not named after him, I don't think. So through his military conquest, he gained a whole lot of authority and control. And he was really looked at as the leader of this emerging Roman empire. Now, in 49 BC, Caesar instigated a civil war in the Roman Italy, if you will. So through the victory that he had there, he became, at that point, the undisputed leader of Rome. In 44 BC, we know that Caesar was assassinated, right? And the famous line from Shakespeare is what? E tu Brute?" right? Because he was looking at Brutus saying, oh, you too, you're a part of this. And so we know that's where he was stabbed and that's where he died. And this incited this huge power struggle that resulted in civil wars for the control of Rome. Now, another character emerges during this time and his name is Octavian. And Octavian was Caesar's great nephew. He was actually the named heir for Julius Caesar because Julius Caesar never had any sons. So he adopted Octavian who was his great nephew, and he made him the heir. But because he was assassinated, he didn't get it immediately, and that's where all of that fight for control. Well, Octavian kind of rose up during this time, and he finally defeated Mark Antony and Cleopatra, which ended the civil wars and resulted in his control of most of Italy and the Western Territory and much of the East. Now, Octavian, because he gained this control, was then given the declaration of Augustus. Caesar or Caesar Augustus, as you may hear him referred to. And that was given to him by the Senate in 27 BC. And it made him the first Roman emperor. And it marked the beginning of the Roman empire as we talk about it from that point forward. Now, how many of you thought, I thought I came to church this morning, not to history class, right? But this is all important, okay, because we're setting up what was happening in the background. Think about all of this power struggle. Think about these people rising to these, these positions of prominence and being recognized for that. Think about the titles that are being given to them because of these things. This literally became the golden age of Rome. Augustus was really smart. And what he recognized was something that Julius Caesar didn't and became his demise. And that is the Roman Empire do not like monarchs. They do not like the idea of one person having so much control. So he set up this system that looked like a republic... But in actuality, he kept all the control in the background. And of course, it was much more favorable for all of the people. So the long 45-year reign of Caesar Augustus is considered Rome's golden age. And it was marked by peace. It was marked by prosperity. It was marked by achievements in both literature and art. And now into that story, Jesus is born. It's during that time that we pick up with Mark and Matthew and Luke and John when they begin to talk about in the beginning was God... And, and, you know, and, and here the beginning of Genesis starts with God and here John begins his gospel with this idea of God. And then God becomes flesh and dwells among us. And Matthew starts with this great genealogy that shows us from the beginning, this was God's intention. And here's the fruition of all of those promises. Luke gives us all the details of his birth because he wants us to know exactly what was happening around this birth and all the characters that are involved in it. But this is the cultural, political background of what we study every time when we come to this birth narrative. Now, we have to understand the birth of Christ within that historical backdrop of Rome, if you will. The whole gospel story starts with powerful Caesar issuing a decree that Joseph and Mary have to follow because he's in control and they are a poor Jewish family. And so you have this powerful Gentile Roman person and you have this poor Jewish family. And all of a sudden the story starts with this idea of this power struggle. Do you see it? But by the end of the story, what happens is it all topples. By the time you get to the end of the Old really the end of the book of Acts, you see the, the, the cracking or the fracture of what's going to happen in the future. And then all of a sudden we see these two kingdoms being contrasted between each other for the rest of the whole New Testament. And so when we look at that, there are some amazing things that we can see some contrast that the scripture gives to us. Um, have you ever noticed that the titles in the gospel, if you've ever studied Roman history, are very much the same titles that were given to Caesar. Uh, like Son of God. We talk about Jesus being the Son of God. Two years after the death of Julius Caesar, in the midst of all of those wars for control that we talked about, the Roman, citizen, the Roman Senate recognized and declared that Julius Caesar was divine, that he was, in fact, a god. And matter of fact, they gave him the title Divus Julius, which means divine Julius. Now, after Octavian, remember, as his great nephew, but adopted as his son, became powerful and, and garnered all of that power, he adopted the name Divi Filius, which means the son of the deified one or the son of God. So being a direct descendant is what made Octavian the son of God because they deified Julius Caesar. And so therefore, he is now the son of God. Matter of fact, he even set his own image opposite this this eight-tailed comet, which was the symbol of divine Julius on the coins that he issued as a reminder to all of his divine ancestry. So you see Caesar Augustus is there on that side of it. That's Octavian. And then you look on the back of it and you see Julius Caesar's representation with the eight tail comet. He's making that direct connection that I am the son of a God. And so he was referred to as the son of God. Listen to how Luke starts off his gospel in verse 32 of chapter one. Says he will be great talking about Jesus coming to Mary. He will be great and he will be called, what does it say? The son of the most high. And the Lord God will give to him the throne of his father, David. And he will reign over the house of Jacob forever and his kingdom there will have no end. And Mary said to the angel, how will this be since I am a virgin? And the angel answered her, the Holy Spirit will come upon you and the power of the most high will overshadow you. Therefore, the child to be born will be called holy. What does he say? The son of God. Okay, now we always think about that because we think about it from that theological perspective. Yes, Jesus was the son of God. But I want you to know that Luke intends for you to understand a contrast as well that this was during a time that Caesar Augustus had taken the title, the son of God, and that his kingdom was gonna last forever. Why? Because they dominated the whole region. It was gonna have no end to where they could go. And into that story, the gospel story comes in and says, no, wait a minute. There's something else that's happening in the shadows here. You see, when the angel Gabriel appeared before Mary to announce the coming birth of Jesus, he declared to her that Jesus would be called the son of the most high or the son of the divine. And then in verse 35, he would be called the son of God. So unlike Augustus, Jesus didn't adopt this name for himself. It wasn't appointed to him by a Senate. He didn't use it to advance his own power or his position or to gain more power. Being the son of God means that Jesus literally was God that he was God incarnate, God in the flesh. He's not just a man. He's not just a high-ranking angel in human form. He's God in human form. Being called the son of God means that Jesus is in the very nature of God. So Jesus is the son of God, but he wasn't made the son of God like Julius or, or Augustus Caesar was, or even Julius Caesar was. He literally is that because... God declared him to be in this divine, miraculous way. It's why all these little parts of the story are so important to the gospel narrative. In a world where a creature loudly boasted this title that really can only be for a creator, Jesus came quietly into the world as the true son of God and then we see the term savior and Lord. We always used to sing in that, right? We sing it, we talk about Jesus is my savior, Jesus is Lord. Well, those terms also come from the Roman empire. The word Savior didn't mean the same thing in the Roman culture as it does with Christianity today. We think of Savior, we think of Jesus saving us from our sins. But in Roman culture, a Savior was someone who safeguarded the people. He was someone who preserved what was valuable in the culture. The Roman Emperor was the one who was to preserve the peace, to preserve the land, to preserve the wealth, to preserve the heritage of Rome. So, Caesar, by being a servant of the state, He had provided justice and peace to the whole world. Therefore, they referred to him as Lord, and they trusted him as their Savior. The emperor was, the term is Kyrios. He was that Savior. When when, when Caesar came to power, when he became Savior and Lord of the people, you know what they called it? Man, that's good news. That's what they called it. Man, the fact that he's reigning, the fact that he's in control, the fact that he's securing for us all that we need, he's securing peace for us, he's protecting the land for us, that is good news. Matter of fact, they would herald any time Caesar would come to the land, and they would use the same terminology— that the scripture uses about Jesus's return, his second return when he comes back. The same words that we use there are the same words they would use when Caesar comes. It is good news when he comes. And so when Caesar came to power, he became the savior and Lord of the people. And that was good news for them. It was worth celebrating. It was worth proclaiming. The ascension of Caesar to power and his birthday were both celebrated As what they would call the evangelion, the good news or the evangel or the evangelist or that good news that comes forward. The good news of a new beginning in the world. Now, do you begin to see how, when you understand the culture that was happening around the gospel, why these words that are used in the gospel story are so powerful? Matter of fact, During his reign, they instituted what's called Advent. It was 12 days of celebrating Caesar's birthday, leading up to his birthday. And every day they would have incense. The people would be given incense so that they could worship Caesar and they could praise him for salvation and they could praise him for the protection that he provides for them as their savior and Lord, okay? Listen to what Luke tells us about Jesus in chapter 2, verse 11. For unto you is born this day in the city of David a, what does it say? Who is Christ the? Now you're living in that first century, okay? Or, you know, depending on how you look at it, 2 B.C., 4 B.C., you know, because our calendars aren't perfect. But when Jesus was born... This is exactly the kind of language they're using in the Roman empire to talk about Caesar. He is our savior. He's our Lord. And Luke says and highlights for us, Unto you is born this day in the city of David, a savior who is Christ the Lord. Notice the contrast between these two saviors. Caesar was born into wealth and power. The story of Augustus is one of power and force, even terror and coercion. But Jesus was born to this poor Jewish family, to these rural parents who had to travel for the census that was declared by Caesar. They had to go to this place and end up having their child in a barn. Augustus made himself savior. But the gospel story tells us that Jesus was born as savior by God's decree, that he was going to somehow enact a salvation that would have no end. Peace. We talk about peace a lot during this season. The ascension of Augustus as emperor brought about the golden years of Rome. We talked about that. That expand, that time where they expanded as far as they could in that known day. And there was a time of peace. The golden years. A time of relative peace for all Romans. And this lasted for just over 200 years. So from the reign of Augustus in 27 B.C. until the death of the emperor Marcus Aurelius in 180 A.D. Now this was called, anybody know? Pax Romana. You remember studying that in history? Yeah, Pax Romana is called the Peace of Rome. Okay, that was what was labeled that time period there. Now I want you to hear what Isaiah foretold way before this time. Isaiah 9, verse 6. For to us a child is born, to us a son is given, and the government shall be upon his shoulder, and his name shall be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, and the Prince of what? Isn't it amazing that God waited, 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 until he was in the middle of the Pax Romana, to send his son. You think this is peace? This is the Prince of Peace who will be born during this time that you think is a golden age. You know nothing about a golden age. The golden age is yet to come. This is powerful, powerful. You see, this prophet Isaiah he foretold that the coming of the Messiah was going to be a wonderful counselor, mighty God everlasting father. That's important because Caesar, there was this term that was used in the Roman empire. It was called pater familias. Pater familias means the father of families. And Caesar was considered to be the father of all families. And yet this small little Jewish boy born to this poor Jewish family was going to be born the everlasting father. Every king wants to bring peace and prosperity to the land. Peace implies the end of war. And isn't it it interesting that the gospel, the rest of of our scriptures point to the fact that that's exactly what would come, the end of a spiritual war, The, the end of that struggle to pay off the debt to sin. Literally, when Jesus died on the cross, he proclaimed, it is finished. What was finished? The war to overcome The penalty of sin. Now, do we still struggle against sin? Yes, but we're struggling against the practice of sin, not the penalty of sin. Once we have accepted Christ as our Lord, we no longer have that penalty of sin. Why? Because it is finished. This kind of goes back to the Davidic covenant. Uh, There was a Davidic covenant, uh, the covenant that God made with David was that there would be rest from their enemies. But the real peace that Christ brings is not peace from conflicts or just oppression. It's literally a peace over that power that the enemy had over us. The peace Christ brings Is from the conflict between man and God because our sin had separated us from God. Christ brings restoration to that broken relationship. He brings a deep and abiding peace between our hearts and God. And this is not just a temporary peace. It's a peace that can never be taken away and which has its fulfillment on earth also as in the world to come. So it's an immediate peace that we experience but not to its fullness until we enter in to everlasting, eternal life. It's a peace that can never be taken away. The angels celebrated Jesus as the bearer of true peace on earth, or the true pax on earth to all humanity. Another title that we see, King. Caesar is literally given this title in the New Testament. The New Testament authors talk about that. Matter of fact, Caesar, the term Caesar is synonymous with the term king. The priest in John 19.15 even referred to Caesar as their king, stating, we have no king but Caesar. So Augustus was the ruling king of the Roman Empire. There was no king but Caesar. That was common in that day. And yet Matthew writes in his gospel that the wise men referred to Jesus as the king of the Jews. So in the gospel of Luke, the angel Gabriel tells Mary that Jesus will be given, and this is chapter 1 verse 32, the throne of his father David, and he will reign over the house of Jacob forever, and his kingdom there will be no end. So Roman rulers were always very sensitive to protecting their titles, okay? There was even these edicts, and they banned the spreading of rumors about the health of any Roman emperor. You could not talk about their demise. You could not predict the day that they would die because that was really popular back then. And so they made all these edicts that made that illegal. This was the time period in which the birth of Jesus was announced. And in that announcement that the angels give, that the wise men hear, they say a new king has arrived. This is why King Herod doesn't like this because he doesn't like the idea of a new king and he knows Caesar's not gonna like the idea of a new king being born either. So I give you all of that history and that context because I wanna say one thing. As you go into the culture over these next few days, number one, we know that Jesus wasn't born during this time period. There's all kinds of other trappings of why we get to this point and why so many people focus on this during this time. But here's the thing. Even with all of that, you're not going to be able to get away from the fact that it is the holiday season. It's the holiday season. You know, you hear that song. I mean, it always reminds you, right? And it just keeps going. And it's all these songs and all these things. You're going to these parties and you're buying these presents. But I want to tell you that it's very easy and very possible that many of you will miss the true Christmas story. Many of you will miss the gospel This season, And you're probably thinking to yourself, how in the world can I miss it? Well, I just want to remind you again of that historical context. The headline news of that day was of Caesar Augustus. He's the adopted son of Julius Caesar. He ruled as the sole dictator of the only world superpower of that day. The lead story of that day may have well have been the peace from civil strife. Or that Caesar Augustus had just declared himself Pontifus Maximus, a deity. Or the sweeping tax reforms that Augustus was implementing, which actually called for Jerry—I mean, Jerry, Joseph and Mary. Don't mix those two together, right? <laughs> to be Jerry and Moses, right? It's a whole a whole another story right there. All right, so Joseph and Mary, not Jerry. All right. <laughs> So they, they got caught up in the whole Roman census and they're having to go back to their hometown to report there as well. So that would have been the headlines of that day and time on the front pages of their papers had they had them. No one could grasp that a single solitary life being born in this outback settlement of a distant Roman conquest in Judea would be born the King of Kings and the Lord of Lords. Most people missed it when it happened. But for over 2,000 years, the prophets saw this coming. For 2,000 years, in all of the books leading up to the gospels in our scripture, the prophets were saying, this is coming. This is coming. This is what it's going to look like. Moses in Numbers 24 said his birth would be announced by a star. In Deuteronomy 18, that he would be a prophet. Isaiah said that he would be born of a virgin, that he was a descendant of Jesse, who was David's father. Micah said that he would be born in Bethlehem. The Jewish religious leaders of that day and time even knew exactly where he would be born because King Herod went to them and said, where was this Messiah, this promised king? Where is he going to be born? And they immediately pointed back to Micah and said, he's going to be born in Bethlehem. You know what's amazing? You know how far it is from where those Jewish religious leaders were to where Jesus was born? Less than five miles, but none of them showed up. None of them even cared to go and investigate what was happening or what this, these, these, these wise men were all about. There was even this widespread expectation of a coming king during that day and time. Matter of fact, there was a guy by the name of Suetonius. He was a Roman historian. He wrote about the days in this way. He says this, there had spread over all the Orient an old and established belief that it was fated at this time for a man coming from Judea to rule the world. That's a Roman historian, not a Jewish historian, not a Christian historian, right? It's a Roman historian who said, you know what? There's a lot of talk that there's a leader that's going to be coming from Judea during our time. In spite of all of that, people still missed that first Christmas. We read the story and we know the innkeeper, he was too busy. The religious leaders were indifferent. King Herod was afraid. That's the reason they all missed it. And you know what? I think a reason a lot of people miss it today is for the same exact reasons we're too busy would you agree this is probably the busiest time of year I mean how many of you you got one thing after another to go do to go get to go buy to go to to create something to make a pie to make this make that and it's just one thing after another you got family coming in you got to go visit family you get closer and closer to those days and you got to visit two or three families all at the same time and you got to take gifts for them all right It's a busy time of year. What about the indifference of the religious leaders? How many of us will go through this whole season never really open our Bible, never share our faith, never talk about what's really behind it? How many of us, this is a fearful time. Maybe not necessarily related to all the Christmas trappings, but we live in a very unstable culture, don't we? And I'm not talking politically. I'm just talking about just look at the world as a whole. I mean, there's a lot of uncertainty. The reason people will miss it will be the same reason that they missed the first one. The wise men and the shepherd didn't miss it. Why? Because the wise men were looking for it. They were searching for it. The shepherds didn't miss it because, you know what, let's be honest, I didn't have anything else to do. They're sitting there. That's the reason the angels say hey, look, these guys are just sitting here. Let's talk to them. Now, I'm sure there's more to it than that. But isn't that amazing that they're not distracted by all the things that were going on? They had time to go and be there. Julius Caesar had Augustus Caesar, his son, son of God. I want to tell you, I just want to remind you some of the things that we talked about, but just highlight it as we exit out of this study. What they said about Julius Caesar and Augustus Caesar was this. These are words that come from Roman writings, not scripture, okay? I just want you to hear them. They said about those Caesars, no other name under heaven can men be saved by except Augustus Caesar. They said Caesar is Lord. Caesar is the only one who can bring peace. The whole world was united by the rule of the Roman Empire. Even when we think about what happened there. Some of the greatest accomplishments in all of ancient history happened during that time. They brought beauty, they brought notoriety, even to Jerusalem and Israel with King Herod and what he did there. Things that had never seen before. The gospel writers deliberately and repeatedly contrast Jesus, the messianic king, and the Lord Caesar Augustus. And they implicitly claim that Jesus is the true Kyrios and Soter. He is the true Savior. He is the true Lord, the true bearer of the kingship of God, and that he was going to bring the true Pax or peace on earth, replacing that false peace that had been instituted by the conquest of Caesar. Jesus was inaugurated by God. He was the one proclaimed to be the Son of God. It was the Holy Spirit who anointed Jesus during the reign of Tiberius Caesar. So Jesus proclaimed the kingdom of God, bringing its salvation to those who were oppressed. He's the one who entered Jerusalem with people hailing him, the king who comes in the name of the Lord as the bringer of peace in heaven and glory in the highest. Jesus was crucified by Pilate, the representative of Caesar, and he was crucified for claiming to be the Messiah, the king of the Jews. But God vindicated Jesus by raising him from the dead, by enthroning him as Kyrios, as Messiah at his right hand. Then in the book of Acts, Jesus' apostles proclaimed to Israel and the Gentiles that Jesus was the Messiah and the Lord. Then Paul, the apostolic representative of Jesus, reached his long-pursued God-appointed goal, namely that he got back to where? Rome and proclaimed the gospel. The very heart of the Roman Empire to proclaim Jesus is Lord and his kingdom will last forever. Those were big words back then, wasn't it? Literally in Acts 28, 31, Paul says, proclaiming the kingdom of God and teaching about the Kyrios Jesus Christ, Lord Jesus Christ with all boldness and without hindrance. That's what he did in Rome. People think, Paul, you're crazy. Do you see the Roman Empire? Do you see how powerful this place is? Do you see how powerful Caesar is? And you're telling me this guy who was born to this poor Jewish family, who they crucified, and you say he rose from the dead, but no one's found him, no one sees him. But you know what? You're telling me that this little vagabond group of people that you call the church, that they're going to last forever? Paul, you're telling me that somehow the Roman Empire is going to fall and somehow this little vagabond of people are going to institute something that will far outlast the Roman Empire? Paul, you're crazy. And yet, today, there is no Roman Empire. And the church of Jesus Christ has gone, literally, to the far corners of the earth. Why? Because he truly is a Savior. And he truly is Lord. In the introduction to Amusing Ourselves to Death, Neil Postman argued, that there are two dystopian dangers represented by two books that were written. One of them was George Orwell's 1984. Remember that one? Big Brother's watching you. And they said that you know what has happened was Big Brother was going to be oppressive to us. They were gonna watch everything we did. And then there was another one, a book by Aldous Huxley. It was called A Brave New World. And in it, he said, no, that's not the way it's gonna happen. What happens is we're gonna entertain ourselves to death. Um, What we're going to give control over to the government through technology. The former represents a state that seizes power. The last one is obedience through basically just pursuing pleasures. How many of you now, when you get something on your phone or whatever, and it says, you need to agree to all this, and you're like, agree, let's move on with this. How many things have we agreed through, through technology that we just don't read it? We're like, just come on. I don't have time for all that. Read I just want pleasure. I want convenience. That's what I'm after. As Huxley saw it, people would come to love their oppression. They would adore the technologies that would undo their capacities to think. We used that at the beginning of our service, didn't we? Postmen postman believed that Huxley was right about the United States at least. That that would be our danger. You know what? We might apply the same principle to our thinking on idolatry. In our day and time, what we have to be careful of is this. What we idolize and worship will always have the power to destroy us. We can worship money, a job, a spouse, children, possessions. We can even worship ourselves. But we can't let good things become God things. Christ came and he didn't elevate himself as God, even though he was born to us as God. The end of Christ's life didn't mark the end of salvation and peace. It marked the beginning of it. Christ didn't have to step down off of his throne when he died. He was raised up to it. Christ gives salvation and protection and peace in more ways than Caesar ever could. And you know what? He's worthy of our worship and our praise during this season, anytime we reflect on him and what he's done for us. It's the great conclusion to the buildup of that whole story from Genesis all the way to Malachi and then from Matthew all the way to Revelation. What we find is God made promises and then he fulfilled those promises. And where we always want to look and try and find things, the scripture's always quick to remind us you're not going to find them there. Because just like Jesus was born in the background and most people missed it, very easily most people in our day and time miss salvation because they're looking for it somewhere else. I've also, I told you before, I love going to the mall and just watching. I'm a horrible shopper, but I'm a great people watcher. And so me and my wife make a good team. So um, I, I like to go and watch people. And you know, oftentimes, f- sometimes you see really funny stuff, right? But sometimes you see sad stuff. And there, there's been times I've seen people that I just want to go up and just say, you know what, what you're looking for, they don't sell here. So often that's what we're looking for. Something in this world that'll make me find that peace I'm looking for, to make me satisfied, to make me happy but it's not going to be found here. It's found in the simplicity of the gospel. That's what brings meaning and purpose to our life. So over this next week, as you engage in all these activities, I want to remind you, don't miss the gospel. Let's pray together. God, thank you for the powerful message that you give to us in your word. Lord, from the proclamation of Moses to the prophets, from the law to the writings. Lord, we are reminded that this is the one thread that goes through all of them. Every single one promises that somehow you're going to right the ship from what happened there in the Garden of Eden. Somehow a baby was gonna be born from the seed of woman and he would crush that serpent's head. Lord, how many people, how many men have risen to powerful positions, promising all kinds of things, but never being able to deliver for long any sustaining peace or victory, except for Christ? Lord, thank you for the gospel story in the midst of a lot of uncertainty. And as we go through these days and we'll be tempted to be distracted, to be indifferent, or even to be fearful, Lord, I pray that you would remind us of that first story where all those people that felt those same things missed what happened. And Lord, I pray that you would open our eyes to the truth of the celebration of a life that delivered so much for us. God, thank you for your goodness. And may you be honored and praised for all that you have done for your people there's anyone here today within the sound of my voice who've heard this message and they don't know you as their savior and lord lord i just pray that today would be the day of their salvation the day that they understand and see and accept the goodness and the glory of god we ask all of this in the powerful name of jesus amen